Welcome to Frontier War Stories. This is episode 24. Before I go any further, just want to advise uh, listeners that in this episode and in Frontier War Stories in general, we will mention either individuals, sites, places, uh, and massacres. And if that triggers you know, our listeners, you know, uh, I do hope you do take the measures to look after yourself. Um, if you're a black follower, you know, please, you know, call your local Aboriginal medical centre and and or or, or some helplines, and you get the, the the assistance that you do need because you know these are some very heavy topics that we do discuss uh, in uh, this podcast uh, as well. So I just want to welcome everybody to Frontier War Stories, uh, and in episode twenty four, I will. I have my second yarn uh, with uh, Brother Angus uh, Murray Radri, PhD candidate uh, at the University of Newcastle. But before we go any further, um, welcome to Frontier War Stories. I would like to pay my respects to the country on which uh, I am recording this podcast on and where my guest is as well, as well as the listeners who are joining us via the different uh, streaming platforms. I also want to pay my respects to all the Aboriginal people who fought in the frontier, which began as early as 1788 and lasted till the 1930s. That's roughly 140 years that Aboriginal people continued to fight and resist. So I'd also like to pay my respects to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people across this beautiful continent. And each episode, I speak with, with different Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people about research, books oral and oral histories, which document the first 140 years of conflict and resistance. These are the frontier wars and these are our war stories. Um, and as I mentioned, uh, joining me in this episode uh, is Angus Murray, Rajri, PhD candidate. Uh, thanks, brother, for coming back on the podcast and and, and having this yarn. Uh, just for anybody who's fresh to the podcast and hasn't heard my previous chat, um, with Angus before, um, so we caught up uh, in May last year, and we chatted about um, Angus's early PhD work I, uh, uh, that he was doing as a candidate, um, which has sort of shifted, which we'll talk about uh, very shortly. But you know, uh, earlier on in the podcast, I had a chat with him, and um, it was about uh, the tactics of Aboriginal warriors uh, and how it changed. Uh, pre 1788 to 1897 so uh, you can look at that episode um, if you scroll through um, other podcasts uh, on your respected uh, streaming platform but yeah brother Angus so you know it's been you know well over a year now since uh, we caught up and um, you know we were in sort of the the bulk of a pandemic and we keep you know, we're still in it as well, different places getting locked down. Um, I think nearly every place on the East Coast has sort of been locked down uh, currently uh, uh, over the last uh, few weeks. We just got out of ours. Um, but, brother, you know, um, as I mentioned, you know, you're doing some important work uh, with your uh, PhD. Um, it's sort of shifted now. But, yeah, just tell us a bit about... Um, some of the work that you have been doing in regards to, you know, beginning the PhD to where it is now. 
thanks, bro. It's, yeah, no, it's real good to be on here um, having another yarn. I, uh, yeah, looking forward to coming back, talking to you. Um, yeah, no, look, when we, when we talked last time, I think I was, I was lucky to be a month in, I think. Um, so the direction, the direction of the research has changed. Uh, not, I mean, not dramatically, but it, the, the focus has certainly changed. So I think, you know, originally when I spoke to you last time, uh, it was a, it was going to compare the way that uh, different different groups, you know, across the continent responded to uh, responded to the advancing forces of colonisation, but that that's been reduced in scope um, for a lot of reasons. You know, partly partly there's no travel. Um, that's just not happening. <laughs> Uh, for anyone, um, but also I realised two things. A, that's why you know one, one, it's just too much for one person to cover uh, that much. And while it's something that I would like to come back to, you know, later talking to uh, mob in different places to kind of you know build build up a, a better understanding of the similarities and the differences and the ways that different groups uh, responded to colonisation. Because um, I definitely think there's a there's a pattern that you can follow as the wave of colonisation spread from uh, the Sydney area in 1788 and then spread out in every direction. Um, but by reducing it to... Now, now I'm just focusing on... Focusing on um, my own mob is only on Wiradjuri country, um, but it's by doing that it also lets me better incorporate, you know, a, a Wiradjuri way of understanding the frontier uh, of put, being able to incorporate that intersection of uh, the warrior's culture that makes up who the warrior is. And why they fought, and how that uh, influenced the way that they fought. So that that kind of, it's a, I think it's I think it's a stronger focus doing it that way. Um, and I feel, uh, well, I feel more comfortable um, just building it up initially uh, from a Wiradjuri Wiradjuri focus. Mm. And even you know, with that as well, you could look at sort of how vastly you know Wiradjuri mob would have. Um, change their tactics, you know, and especially how Europeans would have changed their tactics as well, um, in in their pursuit to sort of you know push the colony further. Um, yeah, no, so, so very very interested, brother, in sort of you know getting to know more about you know where you're going at the moment with um, the new sort of uh, look at your PhD as well. Um, and, and let's sort of delve into it as well. Like, so my broad understanding of um, resistance on, on your country, brother, is, you know, uh, the Bathurst Wars and, and Windredine, you know, um, holding a, a fierce, um, you know, a battlefront against sort of European settlers coming over the Blue Mountains as well. Uh, so yeah, just I guess just sort of begin and just sort of tell us a bit about 
um, what you're doing with your work and, uh, and, and how you're sort of looking at it now. Yeah, totally. So, yeah, and I think, I think that, I think, um, you've really landed on the way, you know, people that are familiar with, uh, the Wiradjuri theatre, uh, and I like to think of these different areas of theatres because, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't as though the fighting would stop in one area just because it started in another, uh, quite often, well, for example, in Wiradjuri country, um, we're talking two decades worth of fighting. Like the, the difference between when it started, where the frontier was and where it was by the time Wiradjuri resistance started to give out in the 1840s, like that's a lot of different groups across the continent um, that had been fighting in that time. So that and that kind of getting a sense of the longevity of the fighting uh, and the the vast amount of space that uh, the fighting occurred across just within Wiradjuri country that that's kind of been one of my first uh, areas to focus on because I realised as I started looking at the tactics that Wiradjuri warriors were employing and using across, uh, yeah, a great, a great distance and a great amount of time. I realised that, you know, it's all it's all well and good to look at the way that that was developed, but we're missing so much from uh, the general the general narrative of how the frontier uh, taught, of how it kind of developed and engulfed the entirety of Wiradjuri country without that understand that broad understanding of just how long the fighting went on for in Wiradjuri country um, and how how many different areas and groups were affected at you know we're talking like a nearly another generation by the time that it ended um, you would have the sons of uh, the fathers and you know, they, they, they're still fighting the same fight. Um, you've got the, yeah, you, you've got a whole, you've got a whole generation of warriors uh, fighting their parents' fight. That's how long this has gone on for. Um, so that, that's kind of been where I started from. But it, um, yeah, so the Bat, the Bathurst Wars, I think, are, that's what most people associate with the frontier in Wiradjuri country, which is early 1820. Uh, you know, martial law declared in 1824 was what uh, was what helped crush the Wiradjuri resistance uh, led by Windradine and others in the end. Uh, but it went on. You know, there, there was there was fighting prior to 1824, um, at least a couple of years beforehand. But then you start to realise, you know, the way the way that this spread and changed, as you know, even even uh, so, a year later, we we got we got the Bathurst War finishing in eighteen twenty four. A year later, in eighteen twenty five, there were reports of Wiradjuri joining mob up in the Hunter to discuss how 
they were going to resist uh, because things were really starting to kick off there at this point in time. And then in 1826, Wiradjuri warriors were up there actively fighting alongside uh, warriors in Hunter, defending their country, um, assisting their resistance, uh, particularly in the you know the western end. There, and then there was a bit of a lull um, until about the mid 1830s, or at least that appears to be what is the case so far. But in 1835, there was a great, described as a great, great corroboree on the Nepean. And there was meant to be thousands of people in attendance, um, you know, people from all over. Uh, There were were groups from all over uh, what would become New South Wales. Um, Windradon was said to be there alongside other leaders uh, from other groups across New South Wales. And what they discussed was that the the white man has sat down everywhere. He's settled. He's, start, he's, he's set up, uh, the white man has set up, and then the white man is not moving. And that has made, that has made us miserable. That has made Aboriginal people miserable. So... You know, we don't we don't have, uh, or at least so far, I haven't been able to find out the exact details of what they were discussing. But that was at least one thing that we have. Uh, you know, and that, that was reported in the local papers that this was occurring, and this is the thing that they were discussing. Um, and then, you know, it wasn't long after. That's eighteen thirty-five. By the time you get to the end of the eighteen thirty. Things are really kicking off, not just uh, not just in New South Wales, um, but uh, all over the East Coast. And you know that this this has happened a year before there was an attack near what would become Cara, uh, where I'm from. And the group that attacked a station near Cara. They were using firearms alongside traditional weapons. So they were said to have shot a man um, as well as used their spears. Uh, they were carrying two stands of arms and ammunition, which, you know, a stand, that a stand is all of the things that you need to fire a musket. It's the powder um, and all that kind of thing. They attacked this station. The, the report, the report, you know, says that the attack occurred because they couldn't find the Warwick Blacks, which is what uh, mob around there were known as. But considering a year later, in 1837 and into 1838, the war along the Murrumbidgee, which is where this group were from, uh, was starting to wind up. You know, was was this group assisting an ally? Because the group of Wiradjuri warriors that fought in what uh, in what you could consider as the Second Wiradjuri War, uh, if 
the Bathurst, the Bathurst War as the first, it was a coalition of hundreds of warriors from not just Wiradjuri country. They were, they were meant to have come from further afield. But if you've got a coalition of warriors fighting along the Murrumbidgee and a year before a group from the Murrumbidgee came up and attacked the station, that might have been quite part of the agreement. Um, so it starts to, when you consider things like that, like you can start to see the scale of the organisation, you know, with this, with this resistance that kicked off around the Murrumbidgee that went much further south, uh, all through, all through Victoria, there were, uh, attacks happening at the same time. Um, did that stem from the 1835 corroboree? Was that what was being discussed? That if white people are sitting down and setting up everywhere, and then you've got within two years, uh, large fighting on a large scale across the East Coast, that starts to look more like a very, like that start, that start, you can start to recognize the signs of how well organised this resistance was. Mm. If I can just jump in there as well, brother, a few interesting yeah. things that you brought up as well. And like one thing that I wanted to sort of ask as well, and maybe even back up sort of what you're saying as well in terms of the longevity of sort of this resistance was, you know, the size of Wiradjuri country as well. It's, it's, one of, it's the biggest sort of nation on the East Coast as well. Um, so you can just sort of imagine um, the time it took to sort of have these conversations in-house, I guess you could say, um, and sort of continue sort of, you know, these dialogues as well. Um, another interesting point as well is this the talking of sort of politics at these gatherings. Um, I remember talking with Ray Kirkove and <laughs> him identifying that um, at some of these gatherings, you know, um, um, an Aboriginal person <clears throat> who was known to sort of, um, you know, uh, one of the colonies up here in southeast Queensland reported that on a message stick, you know, actually uh, I think transcribed what was on a message stick saying, you know, they're talking about, you know, the response to sort of the 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 growing sort of um, number of, of Europeans and 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 the conflicts that they bring with them uh, as well. So um, it's yeah yeah you know what I mean. Like you can just sort of imagine the many nations that you know would have come together. You know just because it's not written in European uh, documents to say oh you know these things happened. You know all these things didn't happen. You know, like you can, you, you you have an account, and I have an account where, you know, at these sort of cultural, at these very significant sort of cultural gatherings that were held annually, um, you know, there was a time set aside to sort of have a response, to to discuss, sorry, the response to sort of the violence coming from uh, European uh, uh, settlers. Uh, towards Aboriginal people as well, you know, and, um, you know, like one of the things that, you know, I, I just think it's amazing that um, amongst sort of everything that is happening, you know, our mob could sort of, you know, have, 
you know, I've always had the capabilities to sort of hold, you know, the space and have these discussions as well. But, you know, understanding, you know, the, the, the size of sort of, you know, your country, my country, neighbouring other, you know, other nations as well. Um, and sort of, you know, whether, you know, the violence is as bad sort of further up uh, on my country than it is on yours at a, at a particular time. But understanding, you know, that, our mob could sort of and did hold these spaces to have a response and then, you know, be well organised in that response as well. Yeah, no, totally. And I, I think what's, what's really apparent, um, you know, from using pieces of evidence like what I've talked about, what you talked about, is that this, this whole idea that has persisted for so long um, by... Uh, well, by not non-indigenous people, that uh, this was everything was happening in isolation from each other. Like, what if you still got gatherings of hundreds of people happening while the violence is happening? What else are they going to be talking about other than how do we stop it? How do we work together um, to resist? Like that's that's all they would be talking about. Uh, and I think, yeah, I, th- I think this is what what you're talking about shows is that we can we can move away from this idea that while while there were you know there were instances that um, groups were fighting by themselves for whatever reason, the establishment of these alliances um, or utilizing existing alliances. Uh, to to fight this resistance, it's like it's pretty apparent, and the scale just because just because uh, settlers and colonists at the time couldn't recognise it for what it was uh, doesn't mean that it wasn't there. And I think this yeah this this is really what I want to try and push is. They can't see it from their end. Of course, we can see it from our end and really pushing um, the Aboriginal perspective uh, on these conflicts. Um, but, yeah, would love to you know a bit more about sort of how differently, you know, and if you're there as well, Wiradjuri people started to sort of adapt to, you know, the growing um, European population and and also the... Uh, other wars as well, um, and if their ch- tactics have changed. Yeah, for sure. And, and I think even... Um, I think you can even see that the... Not just the tactics started to change, but the the overall strategy of resistance on behalf of Wiradjuri people, uh, that that started to change too, you know, I mean, like very, very early on when uh, Macquarie was brought through, um, Macquarie was brought, brought through when they were setting up Bathurst uh, and Sarandri, uh, a Wiradjuri woman, she was, part of her role was to help make sure that, you know, uh, Macquarie didn't go anywhere he wasn't supposed to go, uh, that she would carefully coordinate 
his entry and exit from the country because at this point it wasn't very long after disease had ripped through Wiradjuri country. Um, you know, that was that was part pox. of it. Beg your pardon? Smallpox or other things, other diseases? Uh, smallpox, yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, so Wiradjuri people were obviously very wary of, these white intruders, which I think we can totally understand living in uh, a world still dealing with COVID-19, we can understand just how reticent you would be to approach these people that had brought this disease with them. Um, so that was, you know, that was part of an early, well, maybe we can just get them in and out and then, That'll be enough. They won't come back. You know, then it starts to change when uh, the violence starts kicking off uh, around Bathurst and the fighting gets fierce enough to declare martial law and Windrenine eventually uh, pursues peace in that area. That's also a very different uh, approach, very different strategy to the way... Narendra mob fought their war, which basically went until it was just, it, like their their approach was we will fight as long as there are white people on our land uh, until we either get rid of them for good or we're all dead. And you know that's that's not far from. That's not far from what happened. That was, you know, ad- adopting that uh, that strategy maybe didn't pan out so differently uh, to the Bathurst, to the strategy in Bathurst of going for peace uh, after so much fighting had occurred and there had been so many Wiradjuri people killed. You know, while, while the war in Narendra was very successful early on, uh, you know, stunningly so, uh, Narendra mob through white people off 60 miles of river. There were stations completely abandoned. They, in some instances, pushed white people back into uh, back into Ngunnawal country. But you know, while that was effective initially, it was it was a strategy that couldn't be sustained because no matter how many white people were driven away or killed, no matter how many stock were slaughtered, and there, like, there were thousands uh, talking about you know, co-colonisation and the effects of stock uh, on the land. The stock brought to the Narendra area had a massive impact on the land, uh, and Wiradjuri warriors slaughtered thousands. Uh, but it was, you know, no matter how many they killed, there was always more to replenish them. Um, and eventually they were fighting, you know, it, it just they got to a situation where they were fighting an endless war where the only way it would probably end, and it was unfortunately the way that it did end, it was a, meant to have been a very large pitched battle, uh, down around that way in 1840, 1841. And then, you know, uh, 60, between 60 and 70 uh, Wiradjuri people were ambushed and killed 
uh, on a place called Murdering Island in the Murrumbidgee, which is well known, you know, uh, down there. The uh, kids down there grow up, you know, knowing where that is. Uh, even today, that that those stories are still very strong uh, amongst Narendra mob. Um, but basically, they were fighting. That the the longer they went on fighting, the more chance of them being caught out in unfavourable terrain increased, and there was an endless war. So that like that was kind of the way that it was going to go. Um, not that Narendra mob had any other choice. You know what? What choice do you have other than you keep fighting for everything that you have, um, and eventually, you know they they were they were caught out on unfavorable ground. Uh, there were a lot of non-combatants that were killed. Um, like that, that was that was a massacre, um, which unfortunately, you know that that's how. A lot of the resistance is broken, not just in Wiradjuri country, across across the continent. Um, that white people often couldn't win the way the war was being fought by warriors because they could never catch them, they could never find them, they couldn't catch them out on unfavourable ground. It was normally uh, they were frustrated that they that Wiradjuri uh, that. Well, yeah, Wiradjuri people, um, and same for any other mob, they couldn't get them on an open field of battle, you know, which which they talk about being dishonourable and that kind of thing. That's that's a Western way of warfare. Uh, they they couldn't get them in the conditions that suited them, so then they'd go after non-combatants. They would attack camps in the middle of the night. They would shoot children. Uh, they would shoot women, they would shoot old people, you know, um, employing, and then, and then you start, you know, moving into poison and that kind of thing. Um, the, yeah, that's, you know, that's that's pretty much the direction that it went. Um, and wow. after, after 1840, 1841, um, there is a decline in the fighting in Wiradjuri country. Um it doesn't stop completely, and I, I suspect it was kept up in part uh, at least until the 1850s, which then, you know, we're nearly talking the children's children of the original generation that were fighting. Um, it, yeah, it was just, it was a long war, and it was non-stop, and... Wiradjuri warriors, you know, they, they weren't just ad adopting to the way that uh, technology was changing, you know, the introduction of the horse, because um, the mounted police were brought in to help deal with uh, the war in Narendra. But the way that the British were fighting their war, Wiradjuri people were forced to adapt to them because, you know... Um, they were fighting different kinds of opponents. A policeman is not the same as an armed settler, is not the same as a soldier. For warriors, there was just warriors. And I think this is one thing that 
talking about flipping the script and that kind of thing, um, it's one thing that I would like to get uh, people to recognise is that people often talk about the the way Aboriginal people uh, fought a guerrilla war, which is true. But warriors never hid who they were. You know, warriors were always effectively in their uniform. They had their weapons. They had their shields. White people knew who the warriors were, whereas for Wiradjuri, they weren't fight like they. You could tell a, a red coat, and you could tell if someone had a gun, but it was not as obvious to Wiradjuri people because you never they wouldn't know until it was too late who was taking place in the fighting and who was a potential adversary. Mm, I definitely brother. I think this is something that we did touch on in the previous uh, yarn that we did have, and that was episode six. Uh, if anybody is interested in that and checking that one out as well, um, yeah, it's, it's a total, you know, like alien form of of warfare or battle that in that, you know that sort of comes to the shores after seventeen eighty eight. You know, like um, for the most part, when Aboriginal people had conflict, there was sort of a designated area where dispute would have been handled, and you know there would have been you know, poss- possibly discussions after discussions in terms of who, you know, should settle these battles and, you know, how long these battles should go for and then the after, what's the outcome to it as well. You know, there was, there was, I guess in a way we could say that, you know, there, there, was, there was a bit of balance in terms of how we went about um, um, handling disputes and battles uh, and conflicts amongst ourselves. Um, and then... Yeah, come 1788, you know, not just sort of this, um, uh, you, know, you know, the whole, you know, um, landscape is is changing fast, you know, the introduction to sort of cattle, horses, weapons, and then, as you mentioned, sort of, you know, the, the distrust or dishonesty in terms of how uh, Europeans, how whitefellas would perform perform or, or act, you know, um, on the battlefield, you know, in terms of massacring um, our mob, you know, um, in on the 26th January in 1838, um, the Waterloo Creek massacre um, happened, you know, and, the, you know, uh, Major Nunn was set up, sent to with with, with um, other soldiers and, and also squatters, you know, they're all armed to the teeth um, to track down uh, a band of warriors, you know, disrupting and, and interrupting um, partialist and, you know, uh, the the colonial operation. Um, and I believe they tracked them to a waterhole like 20 kilometres outside of Maureen. Um, or, or they may have tracked them after or before this incident and what happened was, you know, there was a a massacre that took place. Um, and I think till this day, there's the numbers are disputed in terms of how many Aboriginal people uh, were massacred. They say, uh, you know, a handful to 20 to even even a, a higher number than that as well. And, um, and, and the reason why I bring this up is a one, because of how 
you know, um, redcoats or, you know, the, the military would um, conduct, you know, um, uh, their work, you know, massacring mob. But then also the you can, you know, with these incidents of um, resistance and, and conflict and massacres, you can really sort of track where the you know where Europeans have been uh, and if they've been involved um, in these uh, uh, um, events you know so six months later um, six months later uh, in Gumroy country um, towards uh, where is it towards um, what what is now present day Bingara you know, uh, Mile Creek happens and there's a possibility that some of the settlers involved in that and some of the um, squatters were involved in Mile Creek as well and, you know, you, you can really follow, you know, where these people go and and what they commit. Um, you know, um, the difference with Mile Creek and, 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 and Waterloo Creek is... Um, you know, the Aboriginal men were working at you know, another station and the Aboriginal family, uh, you know, the elders, the women and the children stayed back on this one property and, you know, you can imagine what happens next. Um, but, yeah, I just wanted to sort of, you know, bring that part to light in terms of, you know, the and just sort of adding to what you were saying in terms of how dishonest they were sort of on the battlefield but then also, you know, wherever they went, there was destruction sort of laid and you could track you know, whether it was individuals or these sort of incidents that happened, um, you know, um, in different parts of the country as well. And, 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 like, one thing that I wanted to ask as well that I didn't ask properly was how, you know, how big, you know, I mentioned sort of, you know, it's the biggest nation uh, on the East Coast, but in terms of the size, um, how fast did, you know, um, you know, uh, the British sort of spread through the country. Um, you know, was that as the conflict was happening or before or after or, yeah, how that sort of play out? So generally, um, and yeah, I, I totally agree. There, there, are, there are specific individuals that you can trace uh, their war path through along the frontier um, and for as many as there were people, you know, basically anonymous people for uh, the lack of a better word from the Wiradjuri perspective, there were known, yeah, there, there, there were names that were known um, that they knew, you know, this person's here, bad stuff's going to happen. Um, but, yeah, so it, it wasn't uniform the way that it would happen in Wiradjuri country. Um but generally, you know, uh, stations or settlements would be set up uh, quite deep in Wiradjuri country. Um, and it would be okay for a time. Normal, like normally, it wasn't always the case, but normally if the British set up somewhere, it was, tolerated for a time until it would either start to dawn on the Wiradjuri people in the area 
that they weren't leaving and it would normally coincide with recognising what uh, what the people and the animals that had been brought to the area, what they were doing to the area, you know, destroying destroying waterways, uh, felling trees, uh, destroying or desecrating uh, sacred sites. Uh, in the, well, in the case of you know, and not 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 always just food either. You know, there was um, part of what helped uh, ignite the conflict around Bathurst was colonists building on uh, you know sacred ground. They built a hut on a borer ground. Uh, but in in other ways too, you know, like cattle, cattle, cattle moving through the environment, they destroy the nest of ground dwelling creatures, and that would include the eggs of uh, the guga, the goanna, our totem. So that's you know we're not, we're not even just talking about. Uh, making food sources scarce. In that instance, it is it is sacrilegious what uh, what the British are doing to the area. So they're not, you know, they're not just they're not just taking out uh, to use a a modern Western comparison. They're not just taking out the Woolies. They're taking out the church. They're taking out the uh, community meeting place. They're uh, denying access to, you know, it's it's physical, it's it's basic needs, but it's also spiritual. It's violating law. They're taking out the courthouse, um, and that's when, you know, as as they the longer they stay, stay, the longer that white people sit down, the more damage they do to a very carefully managed uh, local ecosystem and that would that would that would help ignite conflict wherever they were and you know that that's around Bathurst around the Rendra, uh those would definitely that because they the, the fighting also con- coincided with drought uh, particularly in Narandra so if you've got the destruction of waterways uh, at a time when water is also drying up, that forces Wiradjuri warriors to go, okay, enough is enough. Like we're gonna we're gonna starve to death, we're gonna die of thirst, we can't live our life the way that we have for thousands of years. Uh, the longer they stay, the more damage they do. And there, you know, there are always other reasons um, that would help get that conflict off. But personally, from you know what what I what I can see, it was generally once white people set up and the damage they started doing to the country that they were on, that would eventually force a tipping point uh, and cha- and change the situation. The, the the that was the point when. British presence in the area would no longer be tolerated. You know, Wiradjuri hospitality could only extend so far to these intruders. 
you know, the perspective that you want to come from is is more of sort of an under Aboriginal understanding. Where does that sort of differ between, or how does that differ from non-Aboriginal people when they sort of look at um, uh, this space, history, conflict, resistance, um, relationships in this in this space as well? And 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 it's not to say that you know you're discrediting the work of of other people, especially amazing people who. You know, who I've interviewed and, and who you continue to work with as well. But, yeah, h- how does sort of that, you know, that, that perspective or that notion differ b- b- between the understanding that you're trying to look for um, in, in in through your uh, PhD? Yeah, no, totally. Um, I think it's, it's hard, you know, it's, it's hard deconstructing all of the ways that, Force us, uh, force us to look at this conflict from a Western perspective, and you know, like there's, there's still ways that I'll be working with this idea for you know weeks or months, and then something will click. You know, I'll talk to I'll talk to um, someone in community, or I will, you know, uh, find something that's been done in the Indigenous research uh, space, you know, looking at things from uh, methodologies developed by not just not just mob here, but um, or Indigenous uh, academics all over the world, and I'll recognise, you know, it, it clicks. Oh well, you don't need to look at this this way, and that's that's kind of where I want to build the the Waradri understanding out of, of the warrior, like at, at a basic level. I think because originally I was going to use a military history lens to look at this uh, because I think a lot of the um, you know the, the the reason I started this is because I thought there were lots of things that were being missed when you didn't look at the frontier wars from that angle. But the further that I get in, the more reading and reflecting uh, that I do, I realise that even that's not enough to understand our way uh, then and now. Um, so from, you know, from a, a military history perspective, a warrior, a warrior can only appear within military history as some variation of a soldier. But if you treat a warrior like the Western uh, or Eurocentric conception of a soldier, then they just look like a bad soldier because they're doing lots of things that soldiers don't do. Um, and it's blinding the person looking at the warrior to the things that, to their strength, the way that they fight. Um, same as, you know, um, warriors often fought as part of a group. Now, you wouldn't call that group, uh, or from our perspective, we wouldn't call that group, uh, a, a, you know, they're not, they're not a unit the way that a military unit might, might be formed by, uh, the British, by British force, by the British forces they are opposing. This, this unit wasn't part of a standing military. You know, they were, they were warriors, but they were other, they were, they had other duties too. 
Um, and that all tied together in a way that a soldier could leave the battlefield and, you know, that the experiences would certainly stay with them um, and it might change them in ways where it would change them in ways that could never be undone. But they could, you know, they, they didn't have to spend their entire life being a soldier and a farmer and a banker or, you know, what whatever. Um, whereas a warrior was much more than just, um, or the person that was a warrior, that they had other roles within Wiradjuri society. So it's recognising that too. Um, mm. Yeah, I like that. I like that heaps, yeah. You know, um, humanising sort of Windredine or you know, figures like him as well um, and understanding, you know, he's not part of sort of the the defence mechanism, you know, that, that that is fighting against sort of the, the invasion. He's not sort of one... You know, he's not a, um, you know, an individual sort of on a conveyor belt getting ready, getting, you know, pumped out, getting learning and all these things. He's, he's much, much more. And some, you know, amongst being sort of maybe a father or, or a sibling or, or an uncle, like, you know, he's part of, yeah, this whole structure in a society that, you know, dates back so long. And, you know, like, yeah, no, I love that point as well, brother. That's awesome. Um, um, I've I've come to sort of my end of of questionings, brother. Um, if there's anything else that you wanna wanna sort of finish on, uh, uh, please do so, man. And you know, I can't wait to, as I said, as I keep saying, I can't wait to sort of see what you continue to sort of uncover and and put together. Cheers. Yeah, yeah. I think I think you know my my main point here has been just to get people to recognise uh, how long the fighting went for in Wiradjuri country and also to take away from that that it wasn't just like that for us either. For other mobs all across the continent, they fought for decades and still fight uh, today. That fight certainly changed, but even if you're just talking about direct combat uh, or surviving uh, surviving massacres, um, that went for a very long time and just because the i guess the 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 lens that looks at the frontier and picks these areas as discrete dates you know like oh the frontier's moved up to here now that's where it's happening and then it's moved over here and that's where it's happening it was happening all the time everywhere and even when even when resistance was crushed at the end of a massacre that Resistance didn't end. It normally just changed shape because there was no way to conduct the resistance in the same way that had been done prior to that. Um, but yeah, no. Look, I, I really hope what what I really hope to help help develop um, is not just a way. You know, obviously this is this is tying together. Uh, the, the research that I'm doing in um, using Western documentation um, and kind of synthesizing that with, you know, the, the stories that still exist, uh, the stories that are still retold um, by Wiradjuri mobs 
all over our country um, to build up our perspective and to get people to understand the way that the war looks from our perspective, but that it also might be, um, you know, like Wiradjuri's do things differently to the way that every other group does uh, things differently to each other. Like, this is not a, this is not a universal approach by any means, but I'm hoping that maybe it can help build up a better understanding for lots of different groups across the continent to really build, you know, a comprehensive a comprehensive understanding of the Aboriginal perspective of the frontier wars and recognising where those similarities are, recognising where the differences are um, and kind of, yeah, knitting together that story so that uh, our, you know, our our kids will have a better understanding of it than, uh, than previous generations. Oh, definitely, brother, you know. Um, and just really quickly, I just want to say thanks um, for coming back on, having this yarn with us as well, very important. Um, and love hearing everything that you're exploring, looking at and doing now and sort of shifting your PhD as well. Uh, and just really quickly for listeners, um, I've been chatting uh, with brother Angus Murray, Radry PhD candidate from the University of Newcastle. And don't forget... Uh, you can become um, a podcast patron um, and support the podcast um, or you can donate via PayPal. Um, You can, if you Google Frontier War Stories, um, Podbeam will come up, which is the streaming platform that I use and you can become a patron via there or go to my Instagram page, which is just uh, bonos89 and then in the bio is a, a link to the PayPal um, you'll be listening to episode 24 of uh, Frontier War Stories.